0: Welcome to the Transformation Church podcast, where we're leading people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. We hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you a fresh perspective on God and His Word so you can see transformation in your own life. Enjoy the message. We are in part three of a series that we've entitled Get It Back. And uh, it's been, we've been kind of journeying through the book of Nehemiah and, um, trying to learn how to get it back in our life. And um, if today's your first time here in this series, you may be wondering, okay, what, Ryan, what does get it back, what is it? We've defined it in this series as that kind of indescribable thing that convinces us that the presence of God is there. And a person can have it, a family can have it, a business can have it, right? A church can have it. Even a nation can have it. And my guess is, is that there might be a few people here today that you would say, Ryan, there was, there was a time when I had that. There was a time when I had it in my life. There was a time that I was hungry for The presence of God. There was a time that my heart would break for the things of God, that there was a time that I was kind of leveraging my life for the purposes of God. But if you're anything like me, oftentimes along the way, life happens and it begins to kind of fade away a little bit. And if that's you today, I got some great news and that is that you can get it back because the book of Nehemiah is a book about a nation that had it and then they lost it and then they got it back so today we're going to be hopping into Nehemiah chapter 2 if you got your bibles or smartphones you could head there and uh, I'm going to be talking from this title today make your move make your move you ever heard of a guy named Matt emmons Matt emmons he is uh, He's known as one of the greatest marksmen to ever live throughout history. all the the greatest shooters, Matt Emmons is known as as one of the greatest, if not the greatest. like one person actually made this insane comment that Matt Emmons is it is like to marksmanship, Matt Emmons is equivalent to what Michael Jordan is to basketball. Like, eh, I don't know who that guy is, but can't put a whole lot of faith in that statement because we know that Michael Jordan is the best basketball player to ever live, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah. (laughs) But Matt Emmons, um, in the 2004 Olympics, um, he's going to compete in the the 50-meter um, three-position event, which is that event, the rifle event, where they have to stand and shoot, they have to get on their knees and shoot, or they have to lay on their stomach and shoot. And going into the 2004 Olympics, Matt Emmons is the leading favorite by far. Like, everybody knew that Matt was going to get a gold medal. Everybody else was talking about who was going to get silver, who was going to get Bronze he was known as the greatest and so they get into that event and he's dominating like first first two kind of heats of it he is so far ahead that when he comes to the final round all Matt has to do is hit the target that's all he's got to do now if you know anything about that sport and and professional marksmen, they don't like miss targets, right? A miss for them is millimeters, not entire targets. And so Matt positions himself and he puts, you know, he got his rifle out and he's aiming at the target. He breathes in, he exhales, he pulls the trigger, and bullseye. Bullseye right in the middle of the target. The problem is, he hit the wrong target. (laughs) It wasn't his target that he hit a bullseye, it was one of his competitors. And Matt ends up going from favorite to win the gold to finishing eighth place. Ryan, why are you sharing this story about Matt? Here's why. I think Matt's experience in the 2004 Olympics is a metaphor for how we often live our lives where typically what ends up happening at the end of the day is we end up aiming and hitting the wrong target in life. Could it be that the worst kind of failure in life is succeeding at the wrong thing? getting the wrong thing right. And so today, as we kind of jump into part three of getting it back, I think we've got to ask ourselves this question, like how do we avoid hitting the wrong target? How do we make sure that the target that we are aiming for in life, that when we decide to make our move, that we are firing at the right target, That's what I wanna talk a little bit about today. In Nehemiah chapter one, we learn that that Nehemiah was minding his own business. And and what does God do? God God brings people into his life to help him to be able to, to see something that he had presently been able to see, but didn't quite notice. Like, I don't know if you've ever been there in your life It happens to me all the time, I walk into the closet, I'm looking for a pair of shoes, I look all over the place, go to Andrea, I can't find my shoes, she walks in and they're right there. Like I was looking right at them the whole time but I just never even noticed. And that's what happens with Nehemiah in chapter one that that he all of a sudden, he notices that his ancestors and that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem have been torn down. And he begins to notice and realize that how vulnerable they are now as a nation because they have nothing to protect them. And that awareness in Nehemiah 1 breaks his heart. Like he goes from, he goes from this kind of time where he's aware, but there's a, a, an emotional disconnect So all of a sudden God opens his eyes and it breaks his heart. And so in in Nehemiah chapter two, we see what Nehemiah does moving from a broken heart to how he is gonna respond to the brokenness. In verse one of chapter two, here's what Nehemiah writes. He says, early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. And I want to pause right there, and I want to highlight the fact that Nehemiah writes this on purpose. He wants us to be aware that there was a gap between the moment that his heart began to break and what we're about to see Nehemiah do in chapter 2. If you look at that gap, it's about four months. And my assumption is, is that during these four months, Nehemiah is praying something similar that you and I pray when God begins to stir something in our heart. It's one of two things, and think about if you've ever been here before or not. God, take this burden off of my heart, or show me what I'm supposed to do with it, right? Have you ever been there? Like, God, either take this desire, this thing in my heart, take it away, or give me wisdom, help me to know what to do with it. And I believe Nehemiah was in this four-month journey process of, of seeking God for what am I supposed to do with this brokenness in my heart about my people? Here's what verse 1 goes on to say. He says, I was serving the king his wine. And he says, I had never before appeared sad in his presence. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Verse 2. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And then notice what Nehemiah writes here. He says, then... I was terrified. Terrified. Like that's a strong word for Nehemiah to use. Why would he use this word? Why would he have these feelings of of terror for the fact that he is looking sad in the king's presence? Here's why. This was a Persian culture. And in the Persian culture, the king demanded that everybody in his presence always look happy. That if they didn't look happy, it was considered an insult to the king. Now, let me tell you why you wouldn't want to insult this king. The Persian culture in these days was equivalent to a modern-day terrorist group. If you got kids in the room, plug their ears, take them to TC Kids or whatever. I want to I help you understand what that looks like in these days and what Nehemiah is facing. The historians record that one of the things that the Persian Empire would do to their captives is they would cut both legs off, they would cut one arm off so that there was one remaining arm so that they could shake the hand of the person that was about to die and look them in the eyes. I mean, an evil group of people. Like one of the things that the Persian Empire would do is that they would skin POWs alive and they would hang the skins of these people on the outside of the Persian walls as a sign to all of their enemies of what would happen if they mess with them. I mean, evil at its worst. I probably shouldn't share this third one, but I'm gonna share this third one just to give you an understanding of how, of how bad these people are. One historian notes that every night they would make their captives listen to Miley Cyrus over and, over and over and over Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I just had to do it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, i sorry. sorry. Andrea is not here to kick me in the shin, so I'm okay. I mean, evil people... In Nehemiah chapter 1, it says that all of this is taking place in the city of Susa, which if you're not familiar with where that is located, that would be modern-day Iran. And so what we have here is equivalent to a Jewish guy named Nehemiah getting ready to make demands to the king of an Iranian terrorist state. I mean, no wonder this guy is terrified. No wonder he's scared. And here's what he says in verse three. He says, this is how I replied. And he says, long live the king. He's buttering this guy up, isn't he? He's buttering him up. Long live the king. He says, how can I not? be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? And at this point, Nehemiah doesn't know if this is a legitimate question or just a setup. And it says here that with a prayer to God in heaven. Which, by the way, it doesn't say what he prayed. All that we know is that on the other side of the prayer, he makes a courageous request. Can you guys turn this off back here for me, Grant? I got something playing back here behind me. In verse 5, it says, I replied that if it pleased the king... And if you are pleased with me, your servant, look what he says. He says, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. So Nehemiah is asking a terrorist king if he can go back to rebuild a city that Persia had already conquered. Now watch this in verse 6. It says, the king with the queen sitting beside him, asked, how long will you be gone and will you return? Like Nehemiah is now beginning to recognize that, okay, the response that I was expecting is not the response that I'm getting. He's beginning to realize that God has placed favor on him. And he says, after I told him how long that I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. And in verse seven, he says, I also said to the king. (laughs) Notice this big, huge request. And then now that Nehemiah recognizes he has favor, now he's gonna add on top of it. He's gonna add, he says, I also said to the king that if it pleased the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. Verse 8 And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber, that I'm going to need it to make beams for the gates of the temple's fortress, for the city walls, oh, and by the way, for myself, my own house. <laughs> One of the things I love about what verse 7 and 8 help us recognize is that in this four month period of time that Nehemiah was waiting to figure out what to do, he was strategizing. He was waiting, but he was strategizing. You know, I don't know if you recognize this and i don't have time to really go into it, but there's two types of waiting. There's a passive kind of waiting where we kind of sit back and we're waiting on everything to come to us. And the longer it takes to get to us, we grow cynical inside because there's this expectation that everything we want should come at, you know, on our timetable. And then there is an active kind of waiting that kind of leans in that says, I'm believing that God is going to come through in this area to the point that my faith is going to lean in and start strategizing and building methods and operational procedures and all of these things for the moment that it opens. For the moment that God opens the door. And that's what Nehemiah does in the season. And it says, that the king granted his request. And then I love this part too, Nehemiah is quick to give God all the glory. He said, this is happening because of the hand of God that's on me. It's not about my courage. It's not about the things that I can do. It is all about God's hand being upon me. And so what can we pull out of this story this moment in time in Nehemiah 2 to make sure that you and I are not just aiming at the right target, but we're hitting the right target. I want to give you three practical tips today to help us to begin to identify how we can hit the right target in our life. The first one is this. If we're going to hit the right target in our life, we have to discover our purpose, We have to understand why we are here. You know, when it comes to discovering our purpose, we can identify that at the intersection of of three things. The first one is our passion. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves if we're going to identify our purpose in life is what are we passionate about? Like, what breaks our heart. We see that in the story of Nehemiah in chapter one, that the Nehemiah got to a place where it broke his heart as he saw his people vulnerable and, ex- and exposed. And so the question we got to ask ourselves is: what is it? What is it? Maybe it's seeing kids growing up with no biblical foundation to be able to st- stabilize them as they grow older. Maybe, maybe today what's kind of breaking your heart is watching the, some 64% of teenagers and young adults that have grown up in church that are totally leaving the faith. Maybe for you, what breaks your heart is, is single parents and watching the burden that is upon them and trying to make ends meet and to try to raise their kids in the absence of whether it's a father or mother. Like maybe for you, it's, it's seeing people that are, are addicted because you were once there And God has brought you along this pathway, this journey of finding freedom through him. And so you look at the people that struggle with whether it's public addiction or private addiction, and your heart breaks because you know what's on the other side. Or maybe for you today, what breaks your heart is seeing people that are less fortunate, not be able to afford some of the essentials in life, to to not be able to afford food, to not be able to afford medical care. And it just, when you see it, it just breaks your heart. Well, if you're going to identify your purpose, you've got to identify what is it that breaks my heart. But the second part of that that you've got to identify is your talent. Like every single person in this room, God has given talents. Like the question that you've got to ask yourself is, what am I good at? Where has God gifted me? You know, for me, I feel like God has gifted me with, with kind of the ability to, to, to see things, like, like to improve things, to improve people's lives, to improve the things that that I'm involved with to, to like vision, to be able to to see things where where others might not be able to see them. It drives my family crazy that I can do that, right? And it drives me crazy sometimes too, but God has gifted me to be able to to see that. But guys, I can't build anything. Like I can see the, the potential of building something but you put a hammer or something in my hand and it's dangerous. Like I went on a missions trip one time to Africa and I got so sick and tired of watching everybody work. I was there to document. My job was video, photography, to document the story so that we could tell our church the story of what was happening. And so um, I'm doing my job and I'm getting like, I'm feeling bad because I'm watching all these other people work, and I'm just walking around taking pictures and video. And so I decide to jump in, and I get a saw, and and this group of people, you know, they were doing different projects, and so I was like, well, I know I can do this one. Like, it was cutting the ends of benches off, and they, they would draw a line, and you would take, like, a, a saw. You know, half this room doesn't even know what a saw like this is, but but... And, you, and you're kind of moving that saw back and forth. And, um, and so I'm cutting it and I start to drift off the line a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more. And this African dude comes over and he said, pastor, 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 put down the saw. You go back, shoot camera, you know, take pictures. We got this. And I was like, man, I just lost my man card totally. Don't tell anybody when we go back. But, but you put me... You partner me with somebody that can build, and we can be dangerous. And that's kind of what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about, the whole idea of one body and many parts, that it's never been God's design that you be good at everything. It's always been his design that you bring what you are good at and you couple it in a faith community with other people that are good at other things, and as a faith community, you become a driving force that pushes back the gates of hell in your community. Sometimes I wonder if the reason why the local church the global local church, isn't wreaking havoc on the gates of hell is because 80% of its body parts that it needs to function are nowhere to be found. The body of Christ is disfigured, dismembered, disabled, missing arms, missing ears, missing noses, missing eyes. Because the people of God have bought into this message of the culture that everything is about me. We bought into a culture of convenience, a culture of wanting things easy, right? And what we fail to realize is that Jesus died for me, but it ain't all about me. He died for me, but my life isn't all about me. And then you see this third circle, a part of identifying God's purpose in your life, and it's the the circle of need. And the question there is, what's the greatest need? Like, where can I step in and advance kingdom purposes where God has planted me. And for us to be able to identify God's purpose for our life, we have to identify the intersection of those three things. That it's in the intersection of our passion, of our talent, in the greatest need. And friend, if you're, if you're here today and there's not a lot of joy in your life, difference between joy and happiness, right? Joy is stable no matter what you walk through. Happiness comes and goes based off of what you're walking through. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength, not the happiness of the Lord. And if you're here today and you kind of feel like there's just not that much joy to living in my life, like I'm going through the motions, I'm doing things, but there's just not that much fulfillment, my guess is, is that you're not living in the intersection of these three things. And the further that we begin to move out, where we just live our life just all about what we're passionate about, right? We live our life just all about, it's what I'm good at, although I don't really love it, but it's what I'm good at, or we're kind of more on the people pleaser side where we just, everything we do is what, what other people need from us and we're absent of passion and we're absent of the things that we're good at. The further that we move away from where the convergence is, the less joy and the less fulfillment we experience in our life. And so we got to identify first, what's our purpose? What are we passionate about? What talents, what are we good at? And then where's the greatest need? But watch this. When it comes to hitting the right target in our life, people often look at purpose as the step when it's only A step. See, we got to discover our purpose. That's finding and identifying the right target. But until we pull the trigger, all we do is see the target. We never hit the target. And so for us to be able to hit the target, we've got to do number two. We got to step out of our comfort zone. So we got to discover our purpose, but then we got to step outside of our comfort zone. For Nehemiah was a he was a real guy with a real family, real wants, real desires, real needs, real job, but my man was terrified. <laughs> he was terrified. He was terrified until he prayed and then he took a step. And when he took a step, what happened? God's favor rested upon him. Look at me, don't miss, you cannot miss this. If you've been checking out, thinking about lunch, that's cool, but don't miss this. Don't miss this. The favor that Nehemiah experienced didn't come before he took the step. It came after he took the step. Not before But after, friend, you and I have to understand that the moment that we begin to identify our purpose, the intersection of our passion, talent, and the need, when we begin to identify that, I guarantee you, you're gonna be afraid. (laughs) I guarantee you it's gonna terrify you just a little bit. But if you're unwilling to walk out of your comfort zone, you will never experience God's purpose in your life. So we got to discover our purpose. We've got to step out of our comfort zone. And the last one, at some point, we got to make our move. At some point, we have to make our move. In Nehemiah 1 his heart becomes broken. And Nehemiah 2, he identifies that God's calling him to do something about the brokenness that's in his heart. And what does Nehemiah do? He steps out of his comfort zone by making a request to an evil king. And when he makes that move, It's on the other side of that step of faith that God performs a miracle. Friend, I got a question for you to just kind of ponder on this morning. Could it be that the reason why you're not experiencing the miracles that you've been praying for, could it be because you've been unwilling to take a step of faith. In Nehemiah 2, verse four, there was a time for Nehemiah to pray. But in Nehemiah chapter two, verse eight, he recognized that there was a time for him to act. And my guess is, in a room this size, or maybe you're at home watching on the couch, that some of you are waiting on God. You're waiting on God to step in and to make things different, to show up, to show out, to perform the miracle, the the thing that you've been praying for. You've been waiting on God, but could it be that God is waiting on you Like a four-way stop sign when you pull up at the same time and you're waving for them and they're waving for you that could it be that you're at the stop sign and God's on the other end and you're waving at God to go and God is waving at you saying it's your turn. Friend, you've got to understand in your journey of following Jesus, this one important principle, that faith activates the power of God in your life. Not wishing, not hoping, but faith. And maybe many don't experience God's power, not because he can't do it, but because we won't. In Joshua 3, Israel's getting ready to pass the Jordan River at flood stage. And it wasn't until they put their feet in the water that the miracle happened. In Exodus 14, when Moses parts the Red Sea, God tells Moses to go forward and waits on Moses to raise his staff in faith before he splits the water. In Luke 17, 10 lepers come at Jesus and Jesus looks at them and says, go show the priest. And the Bible says that as they walked, they were healed. Not before they walked, Not before they took a step of faith, but as they took the step of faith, they began to be healed. Faith activates the power of God in our lives. And could it be that the very prayer that you're praying, as you're waiting on God, God is waiting on you to take a step of faith, whatever that is, my guess is he's been stirring your heart. My guess is he's been, he's been speaking to you and telling you what it is. But for whatever reason, you keep allowing all of that to get in the way, all of life to get in the way. And you know what you're supposed to do. And you want the power of God in your life. But you've never been willing to take a step. Friend, at some point in your life, If you wanna experience the power of God, the immeasurably more than you could ever ask or think or imagine, if you wanna experience that in your life, it's on the other side. You gotta take a faith step. You're never gonna experience God's promises in your life in the midst of your comfort zone, never. What's he saying to you today? What's he speaking to you today? Faith activates the power of God. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, be sure to share it with your friends and tag us at transformTLH. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to seeing your face in the place someday. Have a great week.